0: This is Data Materiality, a podcast series about the ways in which digital data depends on physical forms and infrastructures and comes to matter in practice and imagination. The impetus for this podcast is a three-year research project by the same name, Data Materiality, co-sponsored by Birkbeck's Center for Interdisciplinary Research in Media and Culture and the Vasari Center for Art and Technology. My name is Scott Rogers. I co-host this series with my colleague, Joel McKim. In this episode, I spoke with Yanni Lukisis, Associate Professor of Digital Media in the School of Literature, Media, and Communication at Georgia Tech, which is based in Atlanta, USA. With a background spanning design, computing, and ethnography, Yanni's work has involved a series of unique approaches to thinking critically about data and its materialities. Yanni's book, All Data Are Local, was the starting inspiration for many of the topics we discussed which included negotiating the relationships of various professional and intellectual identities, Yanni's distinct take on data settings and their locality, his commitment to practice-based work, which has included composing algorithms and curating data, and his views on more useful ways to approach data visualization. So let's go to that interview, recorded in June 2021. So before we get into the broader topics of your work, I'd like to start smaller. In your book all data are local, you have a preface which sort of tells the prehistory of the book, uh, stretching back to the middle of the 2000s when you worked on a design project for the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. You tell the tale of trying to put the American Wings collections data into its myriad contexts of use, and that this is a tale that includes, for example, speaking to the museum guards, the so-called security staff. So tell us a bit about how experiences like these led to your book.
1: Sure. Well, I kind of came to the study of data from an unusual path. I started as an architecture student back in the day, and I decided to pursue graduate school in Boston at MIT in a program called Design and Computation, which was actually also within the Department of Architecture. And While I was doing my graduate studies, you know, I picked up some side jobs, (laughs) as one does in in grad school. Um, The stipends, you know, don't tend to be enough to really support yourself. One of the side jobs I had was at a firm called Small Design Firm, and this was a a kind of data viz outfit uh, that was started by another MIT grad uh, named David Small, who had come out of the early days of the MIT Media Lab. And he mostly did work with museums and other institutions of cultural heritage that had interesting data sets that they were interested in sharing with the public in some way. And at the time, I actually knew quite little about data or visualization. I was interested in it, but I was really hired because of some of my architecture skills. Dave Small had just gotten this contract with the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. They were renovating the entire American wing. And as part of that, they wanted to do a whole new reimagination of the kind of information architecture of the wing and, and how visitors encountered information. So, you know, through that project and others like it, I began to encounter data and uh, learn about how you know these institutions were making data in ways that were often surprising to me interestingly enough you know while i was doing side jobs like this that kind of leverage more of my design skills i was actually in grad school learning to be an ethnographer i was studying with people like sherry turkle and learning to Enter into and understand new cultural contexts, new social groups with practices that were unfamiliar to me. So as I began working in places like the Met, I brought those skills with me, even though they weren't part of my formal job. And I started to wonder about how cultural practices at places like the Met shaped the data that they created and how visitors might encounter and understand that data. And so I think that's how my, what I would call a kind of cultural understanding of data kind of took shape, really in dialogue with my interest as a designer in developing new new ways to present this data.
0: One of the things I really found interesting in the book, actually, was that you describe yourself as having this kind of dual allegiance. So on the one hand, to design, and the other hand, to scholarship. And I think what you've said just now reflects the origins of that dual allegiance but thinking about the present how do you mobilize that orientation I mean it seems to me that you're not just analyzing data locality in the book all data are local in terms of analyzing how it unfolds or exists in the world but you seem to have a commitment to actually or actively curating the experience of data or you or at least you have in the past is this something you're doing now
1: yeah you know, all of us have multiple identities. And I think we kind of tend to bounce back and forth between these identities, depending on, you know, often how they're received by others. I often find when I'm in, when I'm around ethnographers, they see me as a designer. And when I'm around designers, they see me as an ethnographer. That's a um, stance that I'm used to as a kind of third culture kid myself. I had a Greek father and American mother. And I lived both in Greece and the United States. And I was always kind of an outsider, you know, in, in the United States, I was the Greek kid. And in Greece, I was the American kid. And so I think it's something that I developed, I don't know if you'd say a, a comfort with, but, um, you know, I kind of accept it as part of my identity. And so I've always been someone who's been interested in kind of that outsider perspective. And I think it's kind of served me well. And you mentioned the security guards at at the Met. You know, I'm always looking for people to talk to who can help me understand this new cultural context that I'm living in, working in. You know, I was spending a lot of time at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in, I guess, the early knots, which was terrific. You know, I'd take the train down there from Boston and spend a couple nights in New York and walk across Central Park to the museum. And I would often strike up conversations with people in the galleries and, you know, particularly these, um, what are called security guards. I mean, they're there to protect the art, ostensibly. But they know probably more than anyone about, you know, what visitors do in the gallery spaces. And they usually field a lot of questions. And not just about how to get to the bathroom or something like that, but, you know... (laughs) about the art. And, uh, and they're folks who have taken these roles because they have an interest in the place and, and in art, and they're often quite knowledgeable. And they were eager to kind of share their knowledge. And they really helped me understand kind of what it meant to be a visitor at, at the Met in a way that I think went beyond what I could have gotten from individual visitors.
0: I mean, that's definitely an ethnographer's orientation, I guess, not just to research, but even to life. I mean, I, I think that, you know, to, to always want to listen to people. So, just turning more to the conceptual side of things in your book, so data and local obviously are key concepts for you. Let's begin with data. To me, I guess the most important and really nicely expressed distinction you make in the book is between data sets and data settings. So, maybe just to begin with, why don't you tell us a bit about the difference at play here between these two senses of data?
1: Yeah, that's a um, a kind of wordplay that just kind of. Came to me in the process of writing the book, and I've been fascinated with how it has really captured people's attention, I think, maybe more than any other aspect of the book. You know, as somebody coming from architecture, I've always been interested in the importance of place and context. And I really wanted to bring that to data. And meanwhile, what I encountered as a young scholar learning about how to do social studies of technology, I was finding that this common understanding of data that we have, that's kind of characterized by the term set. You know, what is a set? Well, it's something that's discrete, it's complete, and it's easily transferable from one place to another, or one context to another. Well, data, as science and technology studies has shown it again and again, data is really none of those things. (laughs) It, It really is entangled with People and places, instruments, whole knowledge systems, as maybe Sandra Harding would call them. You know, I think flipping from set to setting cues us to look beyond just the data to something broader. And, you know, there have been other terms that have been used to kind of characterize that broader context of data, like Rob Kitchen talks about data assemblages. And it's a useful concept, but the thing about setting, a setting is that it has this privilege placed on, on the importance of place. I also like the idea that, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, the relationship between data and its context. And if we think of context as the setting in which data are meant to be fully understood, that's really, you know, what you get by looking at the data setting.
0: And thinking about data settings, to me, I guess, means thinking not just about the complexity of that to which data refers, but also the complexities or the context in how data gets mobilized. And in terms of the latter, how data is mobilized, it seems that interfaces are maybe one of the important ways in which that happens. And you talk, for instance, about how the property platform and app Zillow recontextualizes data. I don't know if you wanted to say a bit more about that in terms of how that relates to the complexities of data in its mobilization.
1: When we talk about settings and context for data, I think too often we're just referring to these places or situations in which data are made. But Whenever we encounter data, it's in a particular setting and that setting matters. I think too often we think of data as placeless. Uh, there's a kind of place agnosticism, you know, not just to data, to digital technology in general. I think this goes back to like, you know, Nicholas Negroponte and Marshall McLuhan, who, um, I think famously said that electronic media collapse time and space, right? Or Negroponte, who said that being digital was going to mean less and less reliance on being in a particular place. But I do think that place matters. We've yet to really kind of grapple with that. And so that's really what I've moved to in my more recent work is to creating new settings in which People can uh, not just encounter data, but juxtapose it with their lived experience in interesting ways. And so one example is a project I've been working on with the data artist, Jared Thorpe, called The Map Room. This is a place that has created a number of data settings. Um, they're collaborative, creative spaces for map making where people are able to draw by hand, digitally guided by a projector that projects a a large-scale map onto a sheet of paper. But then people can draw on features of their neighborhoods, the places they live, and then they can turn on different data layers and see their experience in relationship to things like demographic data from the census or traffic data, um, environmental data, that kind of thing. So, I'm really interested in exploring how data settings might be made in new ways that are maybe kind of more participatory, more open. You know, we talk about open data a lot, but what would it mean to make an open data setting? How would we create settings that are in which interpretations of data aren't predefined? There's more indeterminacy maybe, or that they're kind of more accessible to different kinds of people. So I think there are a lot of interesting questions around the design of data settings.
0: And I think you're touching on the ways in which data, I guess, can be in place with place understood in almost philosophical sense. And probably this is a good point to turn to your conception of local, actually, which like your conception of data, I think goes against the grain of what we might see as the prevailing everyday understandings of local. I mean, local means many things to many different people, but most often it is a kind of scalar modifier. So it's usually used to describe how something is of a particular instance, you know, and it's often being implicitly said against something that has global, national, regional or other wider spread qualities. But this is a little bit different in your book, I think. So tell us a little bit about how you see local or how you're using the term local in the book.
1: In a way, it's a response to a phrase that I had been hearing a lot when I was kind of in the thick of writing the book, probably, I guess, in um, 2014, 2015, people were talking about local data. And by that, they meant data made by non-experts, made in communities, you know, sometimes it was interchangeable with community data, data that was somehow, I don't know, artisanal or expressive and personal. In a way that, as you say, differentiated it from kind of regular data, which I guess was assumed to be more objective, more universal in its applicability and its um, standards and its potential for use. And, you know, saying that, no, all data are local was a kind of retort to that, you know, helping to draw attention to the specificity of all data practices And I think this, you know, really builds on the work of a kind of long history of scholars in science and technology studies, people like Donna Haraway and Sandra Harding, who have talked about all knowledge being local, even science. Science is local, and it happens in specific ways in specific places. So I was really interested in showing how data get made differently in different places and why that matters. My use of the term local also really owes a lot to Clifford Geertz, who wrote a book called uh, Local Knowledge and really saw ethnography and, I guess, anthropology more generally as the study of how local meanings arise. You know, really had the sense that there, was, that there were no universal meanings and understanding a kind of local practice really meant juxtaposing one locality to another, not to some imagined universal. So we can do this quite usefully with data. Often I'll have my students look at a data set and then find another data source that is uh, kind of created in a different place or a different time. And that helps them, that comparative analysis helps them understand what's specific about the original data that might not have jumped out at them. So for example, if you look at census data from different eras in American history, it looks very different. Or if you look at similar data created in other countries, they're asking very different questions. And so I think that helps us appreciate that locality. But it's meant to be a relative term um, and really about differentiating a kind of inside and an outside to a data system or knowledge system that data is part of.
0: And I guess to me, I mean, the way, what really strikes me about it, the way you've just described it and the way it's described in the book is that the claim all data are local is really quite, really fundamental in a sense that we should always be thinking about the locality of data rather than seeing it as a qualifier or a special instance of data. And another one that comes to mind, aside from the one you've mentioned, which is local data, is when scholars and practitioners talk about geospatial data or geolocated data. Like, I come across that a lot. Like, I mean, have you come across that uh, in relation to the way you're speaking about data locality versus the way in which data sets might have spatialized attributes, um, like, you know, a longitude and latitude and 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 then then be mobilized in relation to the geolocated interface?
1: Yeah, certainly, I think. All data have uh, elements or characteristics that can be a trace to their geographic origins. I remember when I was doing some work with uh, data from the Digital Public Library of America, a kind of fascinating case that I write about in the book. It's a kind of mega meta collection, it's been called. It's a collection of collections. So they've brought together data from many different libraries and museums and archives across the United States. And you really get this comparative view of data. You get to see how institutions really have very different fields for describing, let's say, the books that they hold. And even when the fields are the same, um, they mean different things. I remember um, finding a photograph from North Carolina. The location was Low Country. I don't know what that means and it certainly, you know, probably wouldn't have much meaning to, you know, people outside of the state. But, you know, it was obviously meaningful for them and a category that worked for them. I think, you know, when when the Digital Public Library of America was kind of formed when it was like imagined by people at the Berkman Center at Harvard University, they had this kind of universal understanding of information, this sense that It was, um, uh, what's the word, Uh, combinable, additive, that somehow like, well, if you brought these collections together, they were going to kind of add up to something larger than the sum of the parts. That They were inherently compatible. And I think that they found over the years that they aren't compatible in a lot of ways. And then they're faced with a kind of difficult question about whether they're going to change the records to conform to some one single standard. And um, kind of whose standard is that, and what are they losing or erasing in the process? And I think there are all kinds of interesting questions there about what is the cultural history in those collections, and are the data part of that cultural history, or are they somehow um, outside of it? And I think any good archivist would say that the the data and the way of organizing or ordering the collection is absolutely a fundamental part of
0: kind of what that collection means. And is there a danger, I think you do point to this in the book, of romanticizing the local, though? You point that out, I think, at one point, that you know, localization can have a dark side as well as one that is, I don't know, revealing or, or giving voice to something that often is invisible.
1: Of course, of course. And I think, you know, we're seeing these days in the, in the news that data can be racist, data can be sexist, data can be fake, and those all stem from kind of local situations in which they're made. I had a uh, a curator from the Smithsonian Museum tell me this fascinating story. Her name is uh, Maria McQuorter. She's an academic and an African-American woman who worked at the Smithsonian for many years. And she recounted how one day she was doing a keyword search of the collection. And she looked up the term, she typed in the term black. And she got all kinds of artifacts, um, and art objects related to black culture. And then she typed in the term white and she got paintings that use the color white. She got objects that were the color white. She got, you know, some artists whose last name uh, might have been white, but nothing about white culture. And her interpretation of that, which I found really interesting and disturbing, was that, you know, black culture is something that's tagged and tracked by the Smithsonian and white culture is not. And that's because white culture is assumed to be the default. And black culture, black artists is something that needs to be called out, recognized, labeled as different. And that's the definition of white supremacy. And so the absence of uh, identification of kind of an object as part of white culture can be quite revealing about local assumptions and values.
0: And I mean, this is a good segue to thinking about news data specifically, I think, actually, which in one of your chapters you address. And just as an aside, I very much identify with your argument that all news is local as well, just because I'm interested in relationship of journalism in the city. So for me, uh, you know, it really spoke true. But in the chapter um, where you deal with the locality of news data, you are tackling the symbiotic kind of relationship of algorithms and data head on. But what I really appreciate is that you're not just discussing algorithms or data as these conceptual categories, but you're reflecting on your own practice-based work, composing an algorithm which you called Newspeak. So tell me a little bit about why you decided to approach the locality of news algorithms and data in this way. Well, throughout the
1: chapters, I really try to work with the data that I'm reading, that I'm examining in a a hands-on way. And I think that really, for me, it really follows upon a long history of ethnographic practices where people take this stance of participant observer. You know, I really want to participate in these systems as a way of kind of getting up close to them and understanding them and their material qualities. Sherry Ortner, I think, writes about ethnography as a mode of inquiry in which you take the self as the instrument of investigation. So that's really what I was doing, is, okay, what if I try to make a natural language processing algorithm that reads the news? What do I learn through that process? I found that kind of incredibly helpful, and, you know, it's something, of course, I can do because I have, you know, a background in programming and in visualization. And, and I know all ethnographers don't have that, but it's, it's my particular kind of lens that I bring. And of course, other people bring all kinds of amazing lenses, whether they're rooted in a deep understanding of history or storytelling. Sherry Turkle always used to say that she doesn't understand how people do interviews without the clinical training she has <laughs> as a psychoanalyst. So everybody kind of has their own standpoint, I guess, that they work from as they seek to understand another culture. And, uh, you know, I think we have to try to make use of the tools we have and, and kind of show what things look like from our perspective.
0: And I think you really have done that. And that's why I asked that question earlier about that kind of dual allegiance you have, because I do think that, you know, in that chapter and in other chapters, you are sort of demonstrating this kind of commitment to working with the data directly and thinking through it rather than and just looking at it as a phenomenon in the world to study. Although you would do that as well. Now one of the things you seem to be doing Uh, or questioning, I guess, in the book is the value of abstracting data from its origins. And you end the book with a take home message, which I'll quote, you say, treat data as a point of contact, a landing, an opportunity to get closer, to learn to care about a subject, or the people and places beyond the data. Do not mistake the availability of data as permission to remain at a distance, end quote. So the question I have about this, though, is I wondered whether you've come across readers who might be sympathetic, but want to counter this with a reasonable case for a more distant use of data. So I'm thinking of like, you know, critical data scientists, for example, or maybe scholars who are sort of really reflexively using mixed methods, and they're trying to combine close readings of data with maybe trying out data analytics techniques, which might allow them to see broader patterns of social life, using visualizations in a way that maybe temporarily does abstract that data out from its origins. Have you come across that kind of challenge or, or even just questioning?
1: Well, to be clear, I'm not against visualization or distant reading in and of itself, but I think it only really works when it's combined with a closer reading, a closer um, investigation. From a distance, data are just patterns, symbols. In order to understand their meaning, we have to unpack them within a context. And I think, you know, one of my favorite examples of how context gives meaning to behaviors or practices comes from, again, from Geertz. He has the example of uh, of the twitch, the eye twitch. I don't know if you're familiar with this story about... You know, he says, imagine a, a student is sitting in, in their class, which I know is a kind of strange concept these days <laughs> with, with other students and their eye twitches involuntarily. Another student may see them and think, maybe that, that kid is winking at me. And so they wink back. Both of those behaviors are rapid contractions of the eyelid but they mean very different things. Maybe a third student sees this exchange and parodies it, you know, with a kind of exaggerated wink. I think to a distant observer, to a a researcher who is just looking at a, a tally of eye contractions, they might all look the same. And it's difficult to understand what they mean in that context. And, um, how they have different meanings, meanings related to one another. One really has to kind of get inside and become a participant in that setting in order to begin to kind of unpack those meanings and how they develop and change over time. You know, because meaning is also not something that's static. Data collected at, at one point in time are going to continuously change in, in their meanings and significance. You know, we have to appreciate the context that shape those changes and and not see ourselves as kind of able to kind of get outside of them I'll just say one last thing I think I think what I'm trying to do is push back on or challenge a kind of comfort that I often see that students want to have by remaining at this distance and dealing with just the data and not having to talk to people and not you know not having to have have those awkward kind of encounters, you know, there's something that's very clean about data. When you extract them from the kind of messy on the ground situation, you can see these clear patterns. But the closer you look, there's a kind of old saying like, the closer you look, the more complicated everything is. And so I'm inviting people to look closer. There's always another step, another closer step you can take. Often I'll ask students who are working with data, you know, whether they're doing visualization or some other kind of project to find someone who has some local knowledge about that data. Maybe they were involved in creating the data. Maybe they work with the data on an everyday or professional basis. Maybe they're subjects of the data. And they're always apprehensive about this. You know, it's difficult to find somebody. It's awkward to ask for their help to set up a time to talk. They don't know what to ask maybe, um, but they invariably come back from those conversations with a whole new understanding of the data. And their projects are so enriched by those interactions. And I just think it's something we should just do as a matter of course when working with data is be in contact with the people and the places, as I say, um, beyond the data and not expect to just kind of be in our comfort bubble with the data itself.
0: That's it for this episode. I really enjoyed speaking with Yanni. Right from the outset, I was interested and even enchanted by how he described negotiating his dual identity as a designer and an ethnographer. He drew a compelling parallel with his dual identity as both an American and Greek young person. And partly, I thought Yanni was describing how he has drawn out or performed his various professional and intellectual identities based on who he's interacting with. But I also got the strong impression that the way he does this is via speaking with and especially listening to the people he encounters. To me, this embodies the classic orientation of the ethnographer to research, and even to life in general. And I can't think of a more apt way to approach data and its localized materialities. That's it for me this time around. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, if you want to know more about the Data Materiality Project, including this podcast series... Visit bbk.ac.uk forward slash Vasari, that's spelled V-A-S-A-R-I, where information about this project should be easy to find.